0: Should wear mourning for one year They usually enter society After three months For a parent, the period of mourning is Twelve months, ten months black Two months half mourning Or, eight months black and four months Half mourning The black may be relieved with touches of white After three months Crepe is optional, many prefer not to wear it at all Others as a trimming Diamonds, earrings, brooches, etc Before gold At the end of three months For a son or daughter, the period of mourning is identical with the foregoing. For very young children or infants, the mourning is frequently shortened by half this period or even to three months. For a stepmother, the period of mourning depends on whether the stepdaughters reside at home or not, or whether their father has been long married, or whether their father's second wife has filled the place of mother to them, in which case the period of mourning would be for 12 months. Otherwise, the period is 6 months, 4 months black, relieved with touches of white, after 2 months, followed by 2 months half mourning. For a brother or sister, the longest period of mourning is 6 months, the shortest period 4 months. For a grandparent, the longest period of mourning is 6 months, the shortest, 4 months. For an uncle or aunt, the longest period of mourning is 3 months, the shortest period 6 weeks. For a nephew or niece, the periods of mourning are identical with the foregoing. Manners and Rules of Good Society, or solecisms to be avoided, by a member of the aristocracy. Originally published in 1879. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same or maybe you long to. Boy, how convoluted is that intro there with all the different periods for mourning for different uh, family members and associations. And that list goes on and on for second cousins, for servants, different periods of mourning for each one as stated by this guidebook. And um, if you want to see a film that really illustrates the intensity of Victorian etiquette, I would highly recommend watching Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence with Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, certainly the set design and the costumes are absolutely incredible, but it really gives you a feeling for how suffocating it would be to live in that kind of a society where how hard it is to to be creative or yourself when you have this kind of overbearing social codes. Anywho, we're gonna get in a lot more of that on today's episode, which is gonna be about Victorian mourning. It's gonna be about various Victorian uh, customs and crafts, like things that they made with their hair or um, wearing exotic feathers and insects stuff like that, and other things like secret societies. And our guests today, we've got a very special guest who is Catherine Parker, because she's one of my good friends for a long time. And we'll also, it's a double today. We're gonna have Catherine and her business partner, Olivia Lloyd. Together, they have an online antique store where they specialize in antique jewelry and curiosities with a penchant for the romantic dark and macabre, which are all things I certainly like. Three great adjectives. And, um, while they mainly sell online, you can also find them at, uh, Curiosity and Antique, um, events around Richmond and they're going to expand out. And at some point they've already been talking about some kind of brick and mortar perhaps down the line in the Richmond area. Um, but if you want to check out more from them, definitely follow on Instagram. They, they do a really good job of curating their stuff with beautiful photography. That is veiled.mirror. And their website is theveiledmirror.com. I'll have links in the show notes. And this episode is awesome. I mean, the first half is going to be learning a whole bunch about uh, kind of the macabre side of uh, and even comical side of Victorian culture. But after about halfway, we get into some more like the personal stories of um, Catherine and Olivia. Catherine shares a handful of stories about going into abandoned buildings, which is a topic I love. I used to do that a lot, taking for um, music videos I used to make or photography projects or just for fun. So yeah, Catherine tells about finding stuff in, in abandoned buildings. And Olivia talks kind of about... Uh, a synchronicity and a dream that has to do with an antique that she ended up buying. That is pretty haunting little tidbit there. And they also tell an incredible story about um, getting, uh, uh, getting a handful of clothing, men's clothing from the 1920s and investigating it and kind of finding this dark piece of history associated with these clothes, which really kind of is a little bit unnerving to anyone like me who buys a lot of secondhand vintage clothes or even secondhand um, bits and bobs for the house. It's like, you really don't know what the story is behind what you are buying. Just a little heads up with future releases. I'm going to take a break for one release period. And then hope, so in two weeks, there won't be a new episode, but hopefully after that, I come back with, um, if all goes well, an entire series on, uh, one regional topic. Now I don't want to jinx it, but I have really high hopes here. And the hint is this, the all time most listened to episode of my, our numinous nature podcast, surprisingly is the one about the Celts. And in that one, I interviewed, um, a really inspiring and, um, great um, author of ancient studies, Philip Freeman. And on that episode, we focused in on his work um, as a Celtic scholar. So that is the hint for what a whole, I'm hoping one, two, three at least episodes will be about. It's not gonna be about the Celts, but just think about ancient or ancient times. I wanna say a big thank you to everyone on Patreon. I think we've got two new folks since the last episode. We got Cynthia Weinberg and we got Dave Baxter. So thank you two very much. I really appreciate it. And now let me give a shout out to everyone um, at the highest tier. We got Jess Paget, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev. Uh, He is my Leica, my Russian Leica breeder. So if you guys, he has some extra puppies. He still might have some. If you want a Leica hunting dog, um, reach out to Alexander Kuroshev. Um, his Instagram is Leica Power. We got Ann Stanley, Kat Esposito, Craig Koring, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, Nathan Griffin, Ryan Arnold. Uh, Rambler, Ryan Goeckner, Sophie McVicker, T. Pierce, the Militant Hippie, what a great name there, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waddle & Dub, Dobb Craftsman, the wor- and the Working Class Woodsman, and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you so much, guys. This is, making, is really helping to keep this thing going. Now, one of the topics that uh, Catherine and Olivia are going to talk about on this episode, which I know extremely little about, is... Secret Societies. Catherine is gonna talk about one piece they have in their, in their antique collection, which is a mask from a group called the Odd Fellows. Um, Catherine talks a bit about it on this podcast. And I found, I found a book called uh, The Secret Ritual and Manhood in Victorian America by Mark C. Carnes. And in this book, he has a chapter on masks and I'm going to read The Initiation of someone entering their secret society. Now muffled sounds came from beyond the far door. They were singing. It sounded like a hymn, but without female voices, the song seemed ponderous. The music stopped and the lodge became silent. He heard a murmur, rising occasionally for emphasis and falling away again. Perhaps Elston was giving a prayer. The clerk became uneasy. He recalled Colifax's words about altars and temples. He wouldn't have minded being the butt of a joke. He'd planned to laugh deeply and to glower at Wilmot in mock anger, but he didn't know how to act during the serious and chaste proceedings at the altars of this temple. Chairs scraped, doors opened and closed, and then a man in his fifties, a foreman in the gas factory, opened the far door. "'Would you please come in here?' he asked." the door did not lead to the lodge room, as the clerk had thought, but to a room scarcely larger than the preparation room. Lockers lined the wall. A table and chair were in the middle of the room. The clerk walked briskly, trying to conceal his confusion. The foreman sat down at the desk and began to ask questions and record his answers on a sheet of paper. "'Are you willing to pledge on your sacred honor to keep secret all that may transpire during your initiation?' The clerk suppressed a smile and immediately said yes. He repeated an oath to that effect. The foreman stood, tied a black silk cloth over the clerk's eyes and helped him to his feet. Just follow my lead, he whispered. The clerk recalled the warning in Wilmot's book. Give yourself passively to your guides to lead you whithersoever they will. He felt dizzy. He had been sitting too long. Three loud wooden knocks resounded nearby. "'Who comes there?' the voice from inside was self-consciously menacing. "'A brother,' the foreman answered, "'with a friend who desires to be initiated into the solemn rites "'and mysteries of this ancient institution.' "'The door opened, and the foreman pushed the clerk forward. "'You are now within a lodge of odd fellows. "'Here the world is shut out. "'You are separated from its cares and distinctions, "'its dissensions and its vices.' The clerk could not recognize the voice. The speaker continued to talk about friendship and charity, but the clerk was distracted. He sensed the presence of the members and recalled the somber, leonine portraits in the preparation room. Surely, they were studying him now. The lecturer raised his voice. Those who surround you have all assumed the obligations and endeavor to cherish the sentiments peculiar to odd fellowship. "'But before you can unite with them, "'you must pass through an initiatory ceremony, "'which will lead you to primary truth.' "'He paused. "'Are you willing to proceed?' "'Yes.' "'The clerk noticed that his voice was surprisingly thin. "'The room must be large. "'He feared he sounded as silly as he looked. "'Be patient and firm,' the lecturer advised. "'Brothers, the stranger now awaits our mystic rites.' "'Suddenly, the clerk was pushed to the floor.' now presumptuous mortal someone declaimed where is your greatness low level with the earth this is the state of man for thou art dust prepare the emblematic chains at once the clerk was jostled and he felt chains being wound around his body arms behind then there were shouts now bind him to the stake hold brothers shall we proceed with these our mystic rites or shall we show mercy 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 The clerk couldn't recognize any of the voices. First, a solemn warning, then. Lead on, our friend. The clerk was slowly pulled by the chains around the room. He stumbled against a chair and struggled to keep his balance, all the while a voice intoned, man in darkness and in chains. How mournful the spectacle. Yet it is the condition of millions of our race, who are void of wisdom, though they know it not. We have a lesson to impart to him one of great moment and solemnity, a faithful exhibition of the vanity of worldly things, of the instability of wealth and power, of the certain decay of earthly greatness. The clerk listened carefully. If they asked a question, he wanted to answer quickly and sensibly. Laughter was out of the question. He concentrated instead on his awkward blind walk around the lodge. Continually, he slowed, fearing that he would collide with a wall, but the room was far larger than he had imagined possible. His conductors kept pulling at the chains to make him keep pace. After several painfully slow journeys around the room, he was brought to a stop. Be serious, for our lesson is as melancholy as it is truthful, the lecturer warned. The room became silent. Suddenly, someone tugged off the blindfold. He perceived a slate-gray skeleton in a coffin immediately in front of him. It was tinged with blood. The speaker, wearing a black robe and mask, stood above and behind. At both ends of the coffin were torchbearers in white robes and masks. The speaker gestured toward a skeleton. Behold, a representation of the effect of death. That silent yet impressive lecture is all that remains on earth of one who was born as you were born, who lived as you now live who for many days enjoyed his possessions, his power, and his pleasures. But now, alas, nothing is left of him save that sad memorial of man's mortality. The clerk glanced back. The lodge members, standing, were wearing masks. Huge shadows cast by the torchlight loomed upon the back wall. "'Contemplate the scene,' the speaker again gestured to the coffin. "'Should it not humble human pride? "'Should it not awake the soul to a just sense of responsibility to its god, "'of duty to itself?' "'The clerk wondered if the skeleton was real. "'My friend, that gloomy monitor is but an emblem of what you are sure to be, "'and what you may soon become. "'Seriously, meditate the solemn admonition it affords.' "'The speaker paused. "'The lodge was silent.' When the speaker began again, his voice was gentler. He spoke of the need to purify the heart, the fountain of all wrong. Otherwise, hatred, crime, and war would continue to afflict mankind. As the speaker proceeded with a sermon, now he called for universal brotherhood. The clerk again became dizzy. The chains had made him top-heavy, and with his arms bound tightly behind his back, he sensed that he was swaying. He prayed that the lodge members had not noticed. When the sermon was finished, one of the white-robed torchbearers began to speak. He struggled to remember his part. His forehead glistened in the torchlight. His mask was stained with sweat. Now the words came. He described the rose, which, though beautiful in the morning, fades in the afternoon. Its loveliness vanishes away. So it was with man, who rejoiced in his youthful beauty and power, only to have breath soon depart. Death is in the world, and all that is born must die, he concluded. The other torchbearer took up the theme. Leaves die and fall, their requiem sung by wintry blasts, and yet, he paused for emphasis, spring does come. In the place of death, there is life, beauty, and joy, he added, and an air of finality. The clerk had concluded that the skeleton was real, relaxed now, and the ceremony had come to an end. Now he could sit down, smooth his hair, and blot his wounded chin. Now the heavy chains and silly masks would come off, and his shadow world of coffins and skeletons would be flooded with light. And now the mysteries of the Order would be made clear. He had made it through the ordeal. He was an odd fellow.
1: We are the veiled mirror and we are located in Richmond, Virginia. Um, in my studio where we have a photography studio where we photograph things for our website as well as our inventory storage. So, we right now we're sitting looking at all of our inventory.
0: And we're going to try something new here cuz I've never done an episode where we're trying to have two guests speak in one microphone because of my setup here. This is the only way we can do it, but you two are a duo. And I think to start, so I feel like I, these past few, this whole summer I've been on a theme and I didn't really know it, but the theme has been like old objects and collecting. So a few months ago, I did one at Sharp's Country Store, which is this amazing old antique general store in the mountains. Then I did with one with your friend acquaintances over at Rest in Pieces about oddities and curiosities. And I mentioned to you, Catherine, so um And then I've done two recently about collecting with museums, so whether it was manuscripts or old dog collars. So we're on brand. And so I thought, let's just start by hearing about the business that you two have been doing lately, The Veiled Mirror.
2: Sure. So um, we specialize in antique jewelry, curios, curiosities uh, from the 1700s through about the 1930s, give or take. There's a few little odd pieces that span a little bit later, but we try to stick within those parameters. Um, we really love anything that has a an interesting story that has you know beautiful symbolism. Um, we love funeral pieces. You know, primarily, we do. You know, metaphysical, some spooky things. We love secret societies. Anything that's like piques our interest. Um, beautiful. And sometimes it's just something that's absolutely beautiful. You know, like old uranium glass and things of that nature. Uh, pieces made of shell. Um, that whole conchology of the Victorian era. Um, things of that nature.
0: Catherine, anything to add to that?
1: Um, Just to add... Part of our obsession with these items is learning the history behind them, and that's pretty much our driving force is to just go down rabbit holes and figure out where these items came from and, you know, why they were made and why they were special to people 100, 200 years ago. Which I think, you know, knowing those things and knowing the backstory
2: and why they meant so much to people is why they are still special to us now we have a lot of people that say oh my gosh I bought that piece just because of the history of the piece you know they would normally if they had seen it in a store or somewhere they wouldn't have given it a second glance but learning the history of the piece and what it meant to people and what the symbolism behind it is is what made it special to them so really we're finding we're giving antiques a second life that they may not have ever had.
0: Well, I absolutely love that. in In art history or in art collecting, like in the high end art market, and I guess I guess in antiques too. Don't they call that pro- the provenance? Like the provenance of the of yeah, the they do.
2: And you know, it's while we may not know, you know, we may get a a, a locket full of someone's hair, and we may not know exactly who it belonged to, or you know, the story behind it. We know enough about how it was made, why it was made the history of like say hair jewelry in general to make it special, to, you know, to have, to make it have some meaning to someone who doesn't really have any sort of relation or connection to it.
0: Okay. I think let's just get right into the hair jewelry because I remember I went to um, the, the Mütter Museum, the Mütter Museum in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, and they had a special exhibit that was all. Kind of what you got over here, which are, which were this human hair, decorative human hair. Can you let's just go into that subject? Like, describe what these pieces look like, and then we'll get into it.
2: Sure. So we have um, this beautiful uh, hair wreath here, and it is um, it's quite large. It's one of the largest ones that we've seen, and we often hear that from other collectors as well. It's a very it's very large for what it is. It is. A family piece that is made up of many different people's hair. You can tell by the variations and the tones and the color. And, you know, I think there's this common misconception that all hair pieces are mourning pieces, and that is not true. Mm. So, this one is actually basically a family tree. This, is, this would have been a sentimental piece to remember everybody, you know, in the family. So, you know, when this was made, these people were most likely alive. And they just made this as a sentimental piece for the family. Like, you know, how we draw up our family tree. That's exactly what this is. And, um, yeah, and it's really, this one's interesting because they also mixed in little pieces of uh, little dried flowers. or some little nuts in there. A couple pieces of, like, um, crystal, maybe crystal or glass to bring in that, like, nature and natural element. Um, And it's in the shape of a horseshoe, which, you know, symbolized luck and prosperity. And yeah, I mean, it's just a really, it's one of our most viewed pieces when we take it to a show. I mean, I think at the oddity show that we just did, this thing must have been photographed a thousand times.
0: It's, yeah, really, it's definitely stunning. Really describe it for the listeners. Like it looks like, you said a, like a wreath. I mean, it mm-hmm. looks like a dried, it looks, you get, the colors are very muted and dark. It really just looks like a dried wreath of flowers and sticks really and thread and yet, it's made of hair.
2: It's all made of human hair. So this would have been they when they made when they did human hair jewelry or wreaths of this nature. There was two different ways that they did them. One was called table worked hair, and one was called palette worked hair. So this is a prime example of table worked hair. And what that was is it was a small table. That had a hole about the size of your thumb cut into it in the center. Had little kind of spokes on it, and then you would um, put the hair in there, and it would be weighted, and you would braid and weave it to make a tube of hair, so a woven tube. Which we have some other great examples over there with the the watch chains. That's just the tube that you would see, and you could you would learn how to do these things. They had um, this was mostly done at home. Uh, women sometimes made a career out of it. They would get they had books that they could purchase that had different weaving patterns and they would weave these things and then they would take them and they would form them you know sometimes with wire sometimes they would sew them into these flowers so if you look at like if you look at this piece you know there's really almost no two are, are, are exactly the same because they're you know all woven into different flowers some are woven into shapes of leaves um, there's some thinner fla- floral pieces or little sprigs with little kind of little balls that they've Wired in there, it's just really it's it's spectacular. You looking at it upon first gla- glance, you would not know that this was human hair.
0: So those, so what looks just like a flower is is that's a human, all human hair sculpture.
2: Mm-hmm. It's all it's all human hair. And so they've, like I said, they would get books that would teach them how to make these petals and how to create these pieces. So, I mean, whoever did this, I mean, this probably took, I mean. I mean, I guess if they were doing it all day, maybe months, if not a you know a year,
0: a, a just
2: a continuous process.
0: So, when and where was this human hair art like a fad?
2: So, in the U.S., it primarily started around the Civil War. Once people, once men were going off to war, we didn't know whether they were coming back, so they would um, take a snippet of their hair and give it to their you know beloved to keep in the event that they didn't return. Um, And that's where we start with this whole like sentimental romantic jewelry. Um, It was also, you know, and the Victorians had really weird courting practices. So they weren't allowed to like, you know, you could come into a parlor and sit next to somebody, but that was about the limit of it. So, you know, also lovers would pass hair and they would keep it in lockets or have it made into a piece of jewelry. Um, We had one piece in our collection that sold that was, I think, probably two best friends who had it done, you know, who put their hair together. They were woven, interwoven in in the middle of the locket, which was really interesting to see the two hairs. So really, we started in the U.S. I mean, it started earlier probably over in England, as most things in the Victorian era did, and then it had a delay and came here in the U.S. So here we're looking around, what, 1830s, 40s, right around that Civil War time. I think this piece Is probably eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. It's an earlier example. Um, They did some hair jewelry. Um, It kind of fell out of fad, probably around the the, like nineteen hundreds. You know, I think when Queen Victoria died, a lot of the practices died with her, like such as the mourning practices. It kind of carried over a little bit more into the twenties, but it wasn't as elaborate. Or as in depth. So a lot of things like hair jewelry and everything kind of just fell out of fad with her.
0: Well, I feel like we're definitely gonna get much more into the into the mourning practices and Victorian culture. But to stay on this for a little bit, so how big would you say it is? Like two feet by two feet, the actual the actual wreath element? It's pretty big.
2: It's pretty big. I think it's maybe two and a half to okay. not quite not quite three if we measured it.
0: So obviously this is a huge amount of hair when you were saying that this is a family tree are you saying that different members of the of the family as they'd have their hair cut they would be the hair would be set aside to make this art
2: yeah most likely um yeah most women you know had really long hair you know so I think they just
1: they had hair receivers
2: they did so when they brushed their hair they would you know whatever came out of it they had um, a little container with a hole in it and they would save it and it was called a hair receiver which that was also prominent all the way up into the 40s when they were making using it then to like make hair rats and to sculpt those beautiful 40s victory rolls and things like that
0: wait everyone would have had like every woman would have had it we're switching to Catherine. every woman would have had a hair receiver i don't
1: want to say that every woman would have had one but it was popular for women to save their hair especially when they would You know, women used to pile their hair on top of their head. That was a really popular fad. So in order to get that volume, they would make hair rats and put it in the hair and then put it on top of their head and then cover it with their existing hair just to make their hair look bigger and fuller. And I've found one. Like I was going through a house and I opened a vanity drawer and I pulled out this long piece of almost knotted hair. And so I found this woman's hair rat that she probably used in the 50s and 60s.
0: So the hair rat is just a term for this ball of your hair,
1: basically. Yeah, that
0: then would be stuck under your hair to kind of heap on top to get that volume. Yes, that is cool. So that's so that
1: (laughs) they also. I mean, they used hair for more. They. I mean, they sewed with hair. I mean, I use hair to sew silk because it works. It's really fine and thin, and it works really well on on fibers that are similar. So they also used it to stuff like chairs and stuff like that.
0: Are you serious? Yeah.
1: So I mean, hair was an important, you know, household fixture, basically.
0: Well, that's like a reoccurring theme. Doing all these historical stuff, people use what you got. You know, very little is wasted. So, so I know very, extremely little about creating fiber and thread and stuff. I did do a recent episode about wool production, kind of in the colonial period. So with When you're saying you sew with the human hair, is there a a process where it's spun so that you get the length?
1: I'm going to be honest; I don't know the the history of sewing with hair. I have just sewn with my own hair, and it works really well. Just like
0: one (laughs) strand.
1: Yes, and I and I have read I've read about people doing it, but um, I don't. I'm not an authority on it, so I don't want to just start talking about it.
0: (laughs) Wow, what that is! So, anything else with the human hair?
1: Well, I
2: don't think we touched on palette work.
0: I don't know what that is.
2: So with, um, as I mentioned before, you had two types. You had the table work, which was basically kind of like tatting with lace where you weave it through with a pattern. And as a side note, um, there is an amazing, that's in Lynchburg, there's a cemetery there. And in the middle of it, there is a Victorian mourning museum that has all the tables that they used and all these examples of hair work. So it's just fascinating if you're ever in that area. Um, But palette work took a little more skill, and that was as kind of what it sounds like. You would take the hair and you would cut it up, in some instances, or you would um, use a paintbrush and form it, and you could form it into like curls, and or some people would take it and they would actually paint scenes. So that was more prominent probably earlier on, but it still carried on into the um, Victorian era. But you see it a lot in like Georgian, early Georgian, late, late Georgian pieces, early Victorian, where they would take human hair and paint like a weeping willow. And it's all, I mean, it looks like art and you wouldn't know because they're just finely cut pieces of hair that they would just, an artist would paint and create a beautiful scene.
0: That is so cool. It's very, I mean, it's very... In mythology, there's so much about like the symbolism and power of women's hair. So it's so neat to see that how that even st- things from ancient times existed even into the Victorian. Now, let's not get away from the wreath. You did say in practice, it was often having to do with mourning. So, how did this hair work? What was the correlation with mourning? Was it when someone died, they trim- took their hair and made a it, tell me about it. They
2: did. So you know, we're talking about a time where you know photography was in, it, in its infancy at best. Um, and you know, we really, when somebody dies, there's that's really all they have left that you can keep is their hair. I mean, you know, they're gonna. If you think about it, like if you have a loved one that's dis, you know going away or someone who dies, and you want to give them one piece of yourself, and you have nothing else to give, I mean, give them a lock of your hair. You know, and I think so that was something with the mourning practices, you know, they wanted to keep these mementos. And plus, since, you know, there was the death rates were so high back mm. then, you know, they would take a lock of hair and it was also part of, you know, they would have it, keep it in a locket. It was part of, and they would wear it all the time because, you know, with mourning practices, uh, depending on how, who the person was that passed away and what their relationship was to you, determined how long you were in the mourning period. So... um, but then you, but that really didn't. You, there were no real hard, hard and fast rules because you know when when Prince Albert died, Victor, Queen Victoria's husband, she mourned for the rest of her life. She wore black from that point on, and practiced all the mourning practices. So there was really no. It's really up to you. But they would put hair and keep it in a locket, and sometimes they would pin it inside their dress because it's such a personal thing. It wasn't. Sometimes it wasn't really meant to be showy, but you know. Um, yeah, that was why they did it cuz that was all they had left. And they, that's also why they would do like postmortem photos, as like one final photo before they're gone.
0: Yes. So would the hair have been any loved one or was it was it was there certain taboos with it? Could it be your mom, could it be your dad, your lover, your brother? It, it didn't could, matter. It didn't
2: matter. It could okay. be anyone. Um you could be Yeah, it could be anybody, a friend. It just what, you know, whoever they were so sentimental back then i guess we all we still are as a as a race we're very you know as the hum, as human beings we're all very sentimental so um, yeah it could be anyone any relation whatsoever um you, yeah cuz we've seen examples with like silver hair from obviously someone who lived a longer life and you'll see you know it it really it, it
1: runs a gamut we had a locket of a, it had a photo of a young boy and this was a strangely a later piece it was probably early 1900s into the 1910s. And it was a photo of this young boy and it had a piece of his hair in it. So we can only imagine that this young boy passed away and they put his hair with his photo.
0: Mm. Now, w- so I've done some pretty awesome episodes like with like about folk magic and like folk herbalism. And I did one where uh, Rebecca was talking about how there's a lot of folk magic regarding like, when you get your hair cut that you never put your hair outside because birds will collect your hair and they'll make a nest and you'll go insane. In Victorian times, was there any superstitions regarding hair?
1: Not that not
0: that we're familiar with. Okay, okay. Well, should do you think we covered hair? Should we move on to all the interesting things you're alluding to with the, all the mourning practices? Sure, yeah. Yeah, let's hear all about that.
1: Okay, so um, so yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. The,
0: so I guess in Victorian times, we
1: should talk about our name. Well, I'll talk
0: about yeah. the Veiled Mirror.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear about the Veiled Mirror. So the Veiled Mirror is the name of of your your all's antique shop.
2: It is, and it does it does hark- harken back to Victorian mourning practices. So. um... Traditionally, you know, most people died in the home unless there was an accident or something extenuating circumstances, and so they would kind of. You know, a lot of Victorian homes had this had a parlor, as we all know, and that was where they would hold the funerals. And so, usually, the parlor for the most part was not a, not a used room on your day to day basis. It was only used in special occasions, and unfortunately, funerals were one of those special occasions. So, when somebody died, there was a lot of things that they. There's kind of a lot of there's a lot of processes that people go through, so one of the, the first things that they would do is they would stop all the clocks in the house, and that was twofold one, it was out of respect for the dead because their time on earth had stopped, so we're now stopping the clocks, and also it helped when the you know the corn to, to know the time of death when when somebody died. Um, they would also cover all the mirrors with veils. And that is where our name comes from, the veiled mirror, because they believed that mirrors were a portal to the other side. And that if it wasn't covered, that the um, the person who died could get trapped in the mirror and trapped in the house. And they also said, if you looked into the mirror, that you too would be the next to die. There was a lot of superstition going on then. So um that is where the veiled mirror comes from is the is the practice of putting veils over the mirror to keep the dead from staying with the home. That's also why they took the bodies out feet first because they didn't want um the deceased to look back at the home and take anybody else with them. There was just this belief that once somebody died that they could just take you. You would be the next person to go. Um, what else did they do? They also would put crepe, which was a type of kind of, uh, crinkled black fabric. They would tie those to the doorknobs of the rooms where the, where, where the deceased, where they passed. They would also cover, um, they would make funeral wreaths that would hang on the doors and people would kind of, that would let their neighbors know that somebody had passed away. And it's often said that like children would not play on that street or in front of that house as out of respect to the family. They would drape, um, the doorways with with the crepe as well and they would tie different ribbons and different colors depending on who died so if they lived a long life they would have different colored ribbons on the crepe if it was a child it would be white crepe there was all these different meanings behind the colors that they um, used and there's a wonderful picture of uh, when President Garfield died of the White House all draped in black crepe on all the windows it's really fascinating and, and quite beautiful but sad as well <laughs> so um, and then for the funeral processions, they would make things like, um, funeral biscuits that they would give out to people. And apparently they would also give out different gifts to, to people depending on their roles in the funeral and how close they were. Um, what else?
0: Well, what the hell is a funeral biscuit? Cause you said you almost made them I for know.
2: today. It's like, um, it's just like a little, like a biscuit, like a little cookie. And they would wrap it up in some paper and twine and sometimes put a prayer on it and they would give it to... The guests who would come to the funeral—is
0: it like a sugar cookie, or is it more bland than that? Or I
2: think it's more bland than that. I really—I found a recipe recently, and I only kind of half glanced at it, um, so I couldn't. So you haven't tried this? I Haven't, haven't tried, tried it yet. Okay. I haven't. Okay. Tried, I, I recently learned about this but actually you, from a customer um, who came into one of our booths at the DC Big Flea, which is why we—I love this job—is like we're constantly learning new stuff, you know. And so, yeah, he was talking about it, and then of course we had to do what we do and dive into the rabbit hole to look up more stuff about it. So I did find a recipe. I haven't attempted it yet, but, but I do plan to. Su-
0: su- from the superstition lens, are you only supposed to eat these things during mourning or during a funeral?
2: I think so. Yeah, I mean, so you've got to wait. So. You can't just I mean, be
0: eating that all the time. <laughs> 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 that can't be your favorite food That's ever true. for breakfast. Or oh, my right?
1: goodness. How terrible. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right.
0: Now, how about, um, did you want to say something, Catherine?
1: I was, I was going to say another practice, they made, um, she was saying they made wreaths and stuff. And a lot of times they made wreaths to go on graves with paper. Um, so they would make paper flowers. And y- we have an example of that right back here. Oh, oh gorgeous. Sorry, I just, I just
0: talked away yeah.
1: Um, and so a lot of times that would be on the coffin. But before they interred it into the ground, they would keep them as keepsakes. And they often did that with coffin plates as well. And so we have a coffin plate near our hair wreath over there, it's actually a Masonic one. Um, And a lot of times those were kept or given to family members as keepsakes before the coffins were put into the ground.
0: Now, would the... Because from where I'm looking, that bouquet of paper flowers looks just like real dried flowers. Was this like a home craft? Okay.
1: Y- yes. Um, you wouldn't
0: hire someone to do it. No, you would do it.
1: No, a, a lot of times it was the women in the house would do the paper crafts. And again, they had they basically had craft books. So, and we've seen a couple of them where you know we touched on how they would had books about hair jewelry, but they also had books on how to embroider, books on how to do paper crafts, um, paper mache crafts. So you could buy these books and they would have instruction on how to do all of these things.
0: Well, that's amazing. So it's like before there was the YouTube tutorial, there was the craft book.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> okay. Fascinating. Now, um, how about the morning attire? Cause wasn't there, didn't the different colors that one would wear kind of move throughout The mourning process, or the in time, yes, the time. So, I
1: guess I'll start by saying that there is a lot of misconception about black in the Victorian era. Okay. Um. So, a lot of sellers, antique sellers, will pass off pretty much anything that's black as being funerary or mourning, and that's just not the case. Um. A lot of mourning attire is matte. Jewelry is also very matte. Um, If it's shiny, it's typically meant for fashion. That's the same with
0: So you're saying yeah. it's a matted black. Yeah. So if it doesn't really pop, right. that's not probably not actually mourning clothes
1: Ex- or jewelry or yeah. jewelry yeah. exactly. Okay. And the same thing with hats and um, scarves and veils and things like that. Um, crepe is very matte. If you have a veil or a hat that has shiny silk that's likely more of a fashion item than gotcha. a morning item and
2: that and that's that's also true. That's also true with hair jewelry. So not all hair jewelry, you could also buy it out of a catalog. And it was also worn as as fashion because it was so in vogue. So it's not. You wearing a piece of, we have a great set over there that is a brooch and a pair of earrings that's caged in 14-karat gold, and that would have been purchased out of a catalog, and you would have worn that just to wear it because hair jewelry was very popular.
0: Mm. Now, wasn't there, like, phases where you go from black to gray to purple? Like, wasn't there? Mm-hmm, to can, blue. I don't, that's about as much as I know about it. Do you know anything about that?
2: Um, traditionally, I think the... Like I said, everyone everyone practiced practiced differently, and it all depended on the relationship to the person to you. So, um, like a husband, you know, most women would wear black for maybe a year to two years, sometimes with children, and then they would start introducing color back into their wardrobe. The fine, like as you mentioned, the gray, and then the purple, and then the final phase was the blue. So, like Kath is wearing this really beautiful. Um, Kind of, well, I guess it's not really Robin's egg, but it's a really beautiful blue enamel locket. And this would have been worn, and it has a single pearl in that, which would have symbolized that the wearer lost a child. And this with a hand um, holding, what is that, an upside? Is it an upside down flower? I can't see from here, because that would also symbolize death. And that would have been worn in the final phases of the mourning process, which could have lasted, you know, anywhere from three to five years. Or like, as as I mentioned with Queen Victoria, your entire life, it's really a matter of personal preference.
0: Now, did these same cultural rules apply to the men? Were the men supposed to wear black to gray to introduce color?
2: So the men had things a little differently. They would have, um, they would wear like, I mean, a lot of their suits were traditionally black too. So they would have a mourning period. They had, they would show, instead of wearing morning jewelry, they would show their um, level of respect, I guess, with their hat bands on their hats. So different hat bands would have a different, you would put a, you know, a normal hat had a standard hat band on it. And then you would put an additional hat band that would have a different thickness to it depending on who the person was that passed away in your life. And also with, like, the mourning practices, like, men could go back to work after somebody died, whereas women were kind of confined to the home Mm. for a little while for the bereavement process. So the practices, of course, were very different for men.
0: Sure, sure. Now, was there some—well, first of all, I think it's just fascinating that there were these cultural— close, uh, signals. I just think that's fascinating. You just see someone walk down the street and you can tell, you can empathize with what they're going through. I think that's kind of amazing. Now, um, was part of it also to kind of, um, you know, for the women, was it kind of signaling, okay, you're not allowed, they're not allowed to court, you know, to get the, their, another husband, you know, something like that was part of that also to kind of say the rules of, oh, you, Right, there needs right, to be right. a one to two year period to go from one man to the next, but obviously you might in that time period you probably need a man, you know, financially, et cetera. Was right. there some of that going on, like just?
2: I mean, I I, ima- I I mean I imagine so. I'm I'm not really like okay. Yeah, I don't really know for sure.
0: Okay, Catherine.
1: Catherine might. Well, I was gonna say so in certain cultures like India, for example, their funeral practices and mourning practices are a little bit different, but also the same. They wear white when they're in mourning and typically not now, but traditionally women weren't allowed to remarry. They were, they had to be widows for the rest of their lives. Mm. And so I do think that there probably is some of that going on in um, the Western world where women probably aren't allowed to, to court or to marry within a certain amount of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now how about some other uh, of the the morning practices cuz I know you recently I don't know if I'm, I'm jumping ahead here but you recently posted like the cages on the on the graves and stuff like that and yes. and, uh, and I probably know a pinch about this but let me hear you say something first oh, about it.
2: The mort safes? Mort so, safes. Yeah, so fascinating. So we have this so we're talking about this time um late Georgian and when we say that we're saying like you know 1830s maybe eight, maybe 1820s where um,
0: so Georgian is before Victorian? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's
2: with King George and then we have and that went from we always forget the starting date early 1800s. Early no, it was 18? no it was 1700s, Sorry, late 1700s. 1700s. Late 1700s, I want to say 1760 maybe to the about 1830s and then we start with Queen Victoria's reign from the late 1830s up to until about 1900s. 1900. Yeah, 1901 I believe is when she passed.
0: So her that period was pretty long. It was very long, so I didn't know that about the Georgian. I wasn't fully aware of that period there. Okay.
2: Yeah, and Georgian we see different practices because they were very into like the memento mori, meaning yes, yeah, meaning that you know you too will die. Um, and we have had some of those pieces in the past as well. Um,
0: Did you point to something, Catherine? <laughs>
1: yeah. We have plaster art, um, plaster yes, art. and How peculiar. And we believe it's probably late Georgian era, so it's probably. 1820s or so um and it's a grave that has latin on it and then it says regrets at the bottom and it really is it that's a memento mori piece it's just you know just to remind you to look death in the face yes. and to realize that it's always there I think
2: it- translate i think it translates to have no regrets or here no it's fear, here lies here lies, lies regrets here that's lies. what it is here
0: lies regrets. so this guy had what it a is crappy life or woman had a crappy <laughs> life
2: <laughs> or maybe it's to remind you not to have a crappy life oh. like you don't want to go to the grave with regrets
0: great i love that spin yeah. that's good i like that yeah yeah and the memento mori is just on a little side tangent like just that whole genre of still life paintings like the the vanitas still lives we're often favorite we, oh me too where often has a skull in it. It often has a bubble. Um, the bubble would symbolize the fragility of life—that you know your life can pop—and um, often it would have like wisps of smoke, also, and um, all sorts of little things that were so symbolic. Um, we were talking about um, the—we were talking about those the protective casings. Oh right, on, the mort safe. The mort safe. So
2: right. So this was a time um, where you know. <laughs> In, this, in the 19th century, everything is, you know, things are advancing as we have, you know, the Industrial Revolution going on and stuff. And so, you know, we have this fascination with nature and with health and science and all of these things. And we're also talking about a time before people were allowed to, like, donate their bodies to science to help um, learn about the human anatomy. So in order for these, you know, doctors and, what are they, an and Anat- anatomist is that the right word to learn and study the human body they of course need a human body so they would hire this group called the resurrectionists who would go and they would basically kind of stalk out funerals and they would dig up the bodies because they had to dig them up within the first week otherwise they would start to decay and they were of no use to f- for medical science so they would go and rob these um rob the cemeteries of these bodies you know, And it was, of course, just absolutely horrifying to the public and to the families. And um, so they started implementing different things to try to keep the, the body safe and to ward off these resurrectionists. And one of them was the mort safe, which was basically a cage that went over the grave site that would make it more difficult for somebody to dig dig up the body. And then they also implemented things like the cemetery gun, which would be like perched atop uh, atop the graves and they would have run trip lines. So if somebody would trip them, this gun would spin around and shoot them. <laughs> and like they – a particular interest was, you know, of course, uh, people with kind of deformities, people that were incredibly tall, famous people. I mean I think from the beginning they would take, you know, anybody. But then you've got these people that have, you know – that have extenuating circumstances that make them even more fascinating from a scientific point of view to somebody learning about...
0: That's a great point. Yeah, someone know, has elephantitis. They want to learn exactly, about Exactly.
2: You know, they want to learn about these, you know, diseases and things of that nature. That's the whole point of this. So they would... Um, I heard a great story about this uh, gentleman who died. I forget what his... where he was and what his prominence, what his role was. But he was over seven feet tall. So they knew when they buried him that he was going to be dug up prime prime suspects that are not well you know just prime example yeah they want them so they had a, a bevy of, ca- of cannon or guns they set up a bunch of them in the trip lines and uh, sure enough uh somebody tripped them and they heard all the care- the grave taker caretakers heard all the guns go off and they went back out there and all they found was uh like a metal helmet with a bullet right through the head so they know, you know, I guess whoever of the group was there must have taken the body with them. but um, yeah, so they did that. and then eventually it even branched into they made like basically bombs that would go in the actual casket that no. yes, yeah, so when it would jostle, it would shoot up shrapnel and kill them that way and then also
0: just blow apart the corpse
2: yeah basically so it didn't make any sense at all and then they eventually moved they i guess they realized that's probably not great and they moved it to the top of the casket but it still it seems like it's it was supposed to like projectile up but
0: (laughs) i've never heard of such a thing that is absolutely crazy yeah there's actually i've looked at like Old time, how some old time animal traps and stuff back in the day, and they would have ones with little guns. So, like when the animal would come eat the bait, a little gun would fire just like that. Yeah, it's wild. That is one of the strangest things I've ever heard. (laughs) Having the bombs on the castle.
2: I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't serve. What at what point? Yes, it kills the person or maims the person trying to dig up the body, but then you also destroy the body in the process. So. What's the benefit there? Well, you're there? just so
0: angry that someone would I, try I to do so. that. And really I take
2: them out. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. But well, that's also – so because of all of this movement is why we have – they finally passed a law in um, Europe and then as well as in the U.S. saying that, okay, you can donate your body to science when you die. And also that bodies that were left unclaimed could be donated after X, you know, X amount of period. So that's why we we now have that option.
0: And I think there's a lot of like homeless and stuff like that that would end up going into those. But I did a whole episode on a lot of this because uh, I interviewed a guy in Kentucky who runs a medical oddities museum. And we talked a lot about the the grave robbing because students that were going to school there, it's called Transylvania University, but it's been around, I think, since the 1700s. So students there were going out
2: uh, outside of
0: Lexington, Kentucky to do the grave robbing and Uh, he told a story about reading some little news article or something about one of the students um, getting shot at as they was running away with the body, and but the bullet went into the body instead of the student running with it. It's just like uh-huh. horrific stuff. <laughs> I know, it's, it's like crazy, nightmarish.
2: Yeah, that's where they found all. Well, then, then, do you remember hearing the story about that's why they there was that whole rumor about why they thought Benjamin Franklin was a serial killer?
0: I haven't. I don't know anything about really
2: because he lived with a doctor who was doing. He was running, like, basically an underground anatomy class. So he was getting these bodies and then doing, like, live, you know, dissecting them with students watching in the basement of their home. And I guess they were burying them in the basement of the home. So I guess years and years and years later, they went to go. They were, like, excavating and stuff, and they found all these bodies in the home. It was in – because he was a roommate of – I believe it was Benjamin Franklin. And so now they – there was that whole rumor, like, oh, was he a serial killer? It's like, no, they were just burying the bodies <laughs> from his roommates, you know, dissections in the in the basement of the home.
0: That is fascinating. Yeah, it's just utterly perplexing when you look at history. What was okay in certain time periods, and you're just like, that is so I shocking. Don't,
2: I don't think I don't think resurrection is ever okay with but, in, the, in the public. But right, you know, but right. we need it for modern men. I mean, look at where we are because yes. of it. You yes. know. Shocking. Yeah. It's wild.
0: Is there anything else about the Victorian mourning that that we should cover? Anything from your pieces? You said there were these like little signs or should we move? You said the sign had to do with some secret societies. Should we transition to the secret societies?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's all Catherine. She could tell you all about that.
0: Well, Catherine, first to tie it in with the mourning, you have a secret society funerary plate.
1: It's a casket plate.
0: Casket plate. Okay. And that, just,
1: that one is Masonic and it says brother on it. Um,
0: does that just mean a member?
1: Um, so so fraterna, fraternal comes from the Latin word freighter or I might be getting it wrong, but that means brother. Yes. So fraternal societies are meant, it's brotherhood between men typically. Um, so yes, that would have been a member of the Masons and it has a lot of their symbols on it. Um, and so it was definitely a Mason that passed away, and then they kept his casket plate as a memento. Um,
0: Where'd you find that?
1: I don't, don't remember. I don't remember. You don't
0: need to reveal any trade secrets. <laughs> I honest
1: I, on- I honestly don't remember where we picked that one up. Um, but we've always been just interested in the fraternals and secret societies, particularly the Odd Fellows. They're my favorite. Um, they. St- they started in the 1700s, but it's actually people question whether or not they were around a lot longer, but they were driven underground because of a lot of persecution by like the Catholic Church um, and stuff like that. Um, they also started becoming more secretive and doing secret passwords and handshakes and things like that because they wanted to make sure that non-members weren't reaping the benefits of what their organizations did for their members. Um
0: and now, is this in America? This is an American phenomenon. So, well, fraternal societies—I mean, the Odd Fellows.
1: The Odd Fellows are—they started in Europe. So, okay, yeah, okay. you probably England, um, just like the Masons, and they're considered one of the oldest. Societies with the Masons. Um, the the difference, the biggest difference between the Masons and the Oddfellows is that the Masons are more about self improvement, mm. whereas the Oddfellows are a little more charitable and about helping other people. And I think that's another reason I'm more drawn to them. Um, they also, I think, have wackier initiation ceremonies and things like that. Um, like what? <laughs> Well,
0: <laughs> and where did you learn about this reading or so?
1: I, I guess I should preface this by saying I am no historian whatsoever. Yeah, oh, sure, sure, okay, so
0: this is just from reading. This is just not-
1: from finding things out and about that we find interesting and in reading about them. Um, and there's a lot of conflicting information about these groups too, so it's hard to really because they're secret. Um, so it's hard to really figure out what's accurate and what's not. Um, so they so about their initiate the Odd Fellows initiation ceremonies. Um, I did find an old engraving of a guy riding a goat, and there were all these who was in he was naked, and there was all these other members around him, like trying to hit him with paddles and stuff like that. Um, there was also a, an account in a newspaper of a guy riding a goat down a street in a town, like just going wild, and all these kids were chasing after him, and they eventually, like fell into a shop window and broke the glass of the shop window. And when they asked him what he was doing, he was like, oh, I just got initiated into the Odd Fellows. So there is probably... And you some, found
0: an old etching of this, an old illustration? Well,
1: so the the engraving and the article are two separate instances. Okay.
0: Um, now, is this alluding to like bestiality? No, like, no, no, no. You don't think so? No,
1: it's pranks. It's it's hazing, basically. Okay, okay, um, okay. So, like a
0: fraternity today.
1: Exactly. That's what basically... what or, but, Basically, they're a bunch of guys who get together and just have a good old time, is what it sounds like. Um, But so so that – the article and the engraving were early 1800s. Um, And then you have this company coming out of Illinois in the 1890s, and they're called the DeMulin or the DeMulin Brothers. I'm probably pronouncing their name incorrectly. And one of them was actually in a woodworking – secret society or fraternal organization. So he already kind of had a background in it and they started making all of these crazy gags, like initiation gag uh, devices. And one of the devices is a bucking goat. So um, you have to imagine that, you know, of course, they probably really did this because these guys in the 1890s made fake goats for these guys to ride during their initiation ceremonies. They also had wild things like spanking machines and the human centipedes, and they really... Love. Wait, what's the human centipede? <laughs> <sound laughs> <mean? laughs>
0: it's all very like erotic and a little homoerotic. Okay, so maybe yeah. I should backtrack a little bit.
1: Tell about the machine. Wait, let me backtrack. So the Demoulin brothers saw that there was a need for initiation devices, and
0: <laughs> they so
1: <laughs> there so um, membership in the societies was declining, and the. Organizers were like, "How can we get more guys interested in joining our fraternal society?" So that's when they started really doing the crazy machines and stuff. And they and they in their catalogs, like the Demulen Brothers had catalogs, and they would have reviews from people who bought their machines, and they no. would say, "Yeah," and they would say, "Oh, membership has gone up in our fraternal society tenfold because you know? we
0: have a spanking machine
1: because more people are interested in." And the spanking machine and being electrocuted. Um, so the de brothers saw this, and they just started going crazy. And But they didn't just do initiation ceremony machines. They also did, like, the regalia, like the robes and hats um, and things like that. And you can see over here, we actually have a knight's Templar hat and belt and sword um, chain and stuff like that. So that wasn't made by the DeMullin Brothers, but that was made by a company similar who who specifically did Fraternal Regalia. Um, we also have an Oddfellows Wire Mesh Mask, and you can actually see a similar one in one of the DeMullin Brothers catalogs. Mm. Um, and that one was listed under the Um, Odd Fellows or not just Odd Fellows, but that was on the page that was like, this is for your fraternal societies because they also did things for burlesque, um, troops. And then later they started making like graduation robes and stuff like that. The catalog, Yes. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, wow. Now, so describe the mesh mask. So it's, it's transparent and it's kind of looks almost like it has like smeared it's paint, I guess, but it looks almost like lipstick if they made like a Clown-like.
1: Yes, it's painted on top of the wire mesh. um, And those were typically used um, for initiation ceremonies of new members. They would don that mask. They also would wear paper mache masks. And one of the popular ones was Goliath from the David and Goliath story. And that was typically worn, um, again, during the the initiation ceremonies by one of the people who were already members. So I will say that
2: Looking at, like, even though this ma- this mask is made of mesh and with the painted, like, facial features on it, once you actually put it on your face, it really changes the way you look. Mm-hmm. Like, it almost, it really almost makes you unidentifiable, which was kind of the whole purpose behind this. So, it looks like, oh, you should be able to, you know, just, I could recognize you. But when you put it on, you really don't. It's It's really quite strange <laughs> the way they did it.
1: Oh, I also want to say, so there is a museum dedicated to these brothers too, and it's in Illinois and, um, I haven't been, but it looks like a lot of fun. So if anybody is traveling in that direction, make sure you check it out.
0: Well, I mean, so as you know, I went to film school. One of my all time favorites is the great, great master Stanley Kubrick who obviously did one of his many masterpieces is eyes wide shut which that's i can't help but your mind go right to that which are like you said these robed masked rituals where there's usually an orgy going on so do you know any like is there anything nefarious or uh, or you know on the erotic or nefarious or creepy well- side of that you found in your reading about So they're 80s.
1: primarily men, um, but, I, I mean, I can't say that nothing did happen. Um, they didn't like women in their societies, and they actually ended up um, women would create their own societies, like as an offshoot. Interesting. And then later on, women were allowed into the societies. But I know I've read about the Odd Fellows keeping skeletons, um, and that is still something that um, – that has happened recently where they go into Oddfellow lodges and they find skeletons in the closet. And then they do mur- literally. Yeah. <laughs> and they so they've they've done murder investigations just to make sure. And then they realize, oh no, it's just the Oddfellows. So one of the initiations supposedly is that you have to kiss a human skeleton. Mm. And like I was saying earlier, like the whole point is so that you f- you are face to face with death. Um the Oddfellow's motto, like they have the three. Links of chain, and that is friendship, truth, and faith. Um, but also, so
0: it was a sect of like there was a Christian element to it,
1: yes. So, and that's one reason why the church doesn't like these types of societies is because they are typically based in Christianity, but they're kind of also seen as a threat to Christianity because they do have their own code of conduct and their own code of morals and things like that. And the church sees that as a threat. Sure. Um,
0: now, but okay, we totally went away from the spanking machine. Okay. <laughs> so, and you said some something about- A human centipede? A human centipede, which has very- Bizarre horror movie uh, connotations. When
1: well, it makes you wonder, did did the people who created Human Centipede know about the DeMoulin brothers?
0: What, what about it? Tell me about it.
1: So the Human Centipede, it's really not that exciting. It's just a, it's a basically a, a ride and it's a centipede that you sit on almost like a hobby horse and there are four people can sit on it and there's a main guy in the front who has the button that is attached to a battery and he can shock you whenever he wants to and so there's three guys on the back sitting on this thing and they're running around the room like if you can imagine that and then he suddenly you're just shocked in the ass (laughs) okay okay um uh so anyway so that's that's just the pranks that they would do and the so that's the
0: electrocution them. stuff exactly. you're alluding to. And the okay. and the
1: spanking machine also has an electric um, element to it as well. Basically, the whole premise is that you're on a board and there are two handles that you you bend over and you try to lift up. As you're lifting it up, this paddle comes that you didn't know was there and spanks you in the butt. And when it spanks you in the butt, the handles are also electrocuted, will electrocute you. So you have to kind of h- try to hold this thing up while you're being Shocked. I don't want to say electrocuted because it's just a battery, yeah. but I mean, it's still probably not comfortable.
0: <laughs> so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> Very homoerotic. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I can't, I can't say for sure that they were doing these types of initiations sure, sure. before the Demulen brothers came along. This was something that really happened in the 1890s into the early 1900s. And then they, I think they sold or started doing something else around 1930, so you don't – so a lot of their items are hard to find because they just didn't have a lot of time to make a lot of them.
0: So how did you How did you know when you found this stuff, how do you even have any idea that this comes from a secret society? How would you even know that? How did – tell me about finding these pieces.
1: Okay. Well, we travel – Anywhere and everywhere. We follow leads, um, we go to people's houses, we dig through barns. I've been invited into abandoned houses that people own that are full of items. Um, I mean, we, Olivia and I, have been doing this for so long. Um, We started doing vintage, you know, between the two of us, we probably have about 30 years' experience in the vintage and antique world. Um, Her dad, and family had an auction house, and mm. that's how she started. My dad would always drag me around to estate sales, and he was also interested in antiques. And then one thing is that I obsessively watched old movies when I was younger, and that's how I kind of started identifying the era of clothing and hats. And um, and then you start getting into architecture and and it's just a it just balloons from there. Um, I always joke that I think I'll probably be doing Roman antiquities next because I'm kind of at the earliest point for a lot of American um, antiques. So it's like, where do I go from you here? Go I, I got to go to Europe, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, that I've been thinking that, that you two need to take a trip to Europe and stock up.
1: Yes, for sure. Yes.
0: And I, I want to just note that, you know, for someone who's only listening to the podcast and maybe doesn't follow me on Instagram in case I post a picture of you two, you both dress incredibly well. And that's how our friendship, me and Catherine started, was kind of around vintage clothing when I lived up in New York. And maybe we'll get more into some stuff like that. But so, yeah, you two dress awesome. So it's awesome to just see your the whole style of everything you're doing. Thank you. Do you think that we kind of covered enough of the veiled mirror? Because I did want to talk with Catherine a little just about some of the abandoned building stuff that we've done. Um, but is there more to talk about um, regarding? I just- would like
1: to talk a little bit about um, the aesthetic movement because I think that's yeah, really interesting and the natural... Uh, the natural things that they would make jewelry out of, like a perculum shells, um, yes, elephant hair. I don't, I don't think we've touched on that yet. Have
0: no, we? no, not at all. And the tortoise shell.
1: Yeah. So I might hand the mic back over to Olivia.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So one thing I'm extremely interested in with this podcast is, you know, I really the things I'm really interested in are nature, like history and folklore. So when those mix, I love it. So one thing that's just endlessly fascinating is how did people throughout history what did they do with the natural world? And it's kind of shocking because it's obviously like that's not sustainable forever to be like making all these damn tortoiseshell things, as cool right. as they are, yeah. as awesome as it would be to have one a piece. So let's hear just about what is the – where are you coming in on yeah. this topic? So
2: basically, you know, back then, as, as the same with like the medical science aspect of the, the period, we're also – This is a time where we're seeing lots of people wanting to learn about everything they can about nature. And particularly as we have the Industrial Revolution coming up and it's, you know, polluting the air and the waterways. And we get to a point where people are just done. They're over it. And so we see this movement called the – we call it the aesthetic movement where we go back to nature. We go back to uh, making things that are beautiful instead of, you know – not necessarily, you know, beauty before function. They're making these things that are beautiful. We see a lot of nature, like, bird motifs and things are coming back into jewelry in particular, as well as, like, um, art, sculptures, all that stuff. And this is where people start going out and collecting ferns and having them under glass in their, you know, in their solariums, and we're doing things of that nature. Um, And they'll start using a lot of natural materials for jewelry and we're making you know shell art with our little conchology going on um, if
0: I can interject what I know what a terrarium is what is a solarium?
2: A solarium is um basically like a uh like a almost like a glass room on a house
0: glass room on a
2: house yeah, it would have lots of like glass walls. might I explain this correctly glass a well, like a house. Like no more like a like a green kind of like a greenhouse or a sun porch, but it's usually all glass, and they would have you know. But you can walk around in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's connected, and they would have you know. It, it's going to be a little hotter and more humid, and they would have all of their wildlife and not. But everything's
0: plants. alive. The ferns mm-hmm. are alive. Yeah,
1: I was just going to interject um and to try to put things into perspective. The Industrial Revolution caused a strong middle class, which we hadn't really seen before. So people started traveling a lot and they wanted to collect things in their travels. And a lot of those things were exotic plants that they couldn't necessarily grow outside um, of their home. So that's where the solarium would come into play. It was it was like a, a greenhouse in a sense where they could keep these plants alive longer.
0: The exotic ones. Yeah. Got um, it, so jungle plants, exactly.
1: stuff like that. Um, so, so because of the middle class that's when pe- like people really started to collect the souvenirs from around the world um and things like that and I mean don't d- dare I talk about a pineapple <laughs> Oh my goodness! No, we won't go. We won't go down the pineapple route. Well, if we go down the pineapple route, I have to give the mic back to Olivia because she's <laughs> she knows all about the pineapple.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, if if you're laughing about it and saying don't not <laughs> don't, talk, about
2: the, don't talk about the pineapple, it's let's so hear passe. about the pineapple. Oh my goodness! Well, so the pineapple, you know, nowadays it's it's so common, but yeah. back then it was exotic. So you know, people would. Care- they would they would rent out pineapples for no. f- yes for for party centerpieces because it was seen as to have a pineapple to have this you know exotic fruit was seen as like you obviously came from wealth it was prestige moment some people would actually walk around carrying a pineapple just to <laughs> show that they had this that they were a man of means you know that could have such exotic fruit so yeah we we often joke that we're going gonna to start walking around carrying pineapples to show how you
0: know hey that's a good halloween idea yeah
2: exactly but yeah they would you could rent a pineapple for your centerpiece so you could impress your party guests and things of that nature so so
0: i mean i'm brutally ignorant on pineapples where do they even come from is it from asia or is it from south america where does a pineapple come from
1: you know i feel like we should know that i mean is. now well, now it's hawaii but hawaii. like
0: oh, hawaii. you know okay. but
2: i yeah. then i'm not quite sure yeah. where i don't remember but where so anyways
0: the, for these for the victorians this pineapple is obviously traveling from super far yes. away so it's extremely expensive yes and it only has such a shelf life right know. right incredible Incredible. That actually reminds me, a little tangent, but one time up in New York City, we, me and my buddies went to Chinatown, and we got a durian. You ever heard of those? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those fruits that smell they horrific, smell especially to Westerners. It's like noxious. It smells like, makes you almost gag. It smells like, people say dirty socks. It smells almost like turpentine. But uh, yeah, we got one of those, and we brought it to a party, and we hacked it open in the, in the middle of the party, <laughs> and every every single person ran out of the door. But, uh, <laughs> I love it. So- what? Where were? Where were we? Sorry.
1: So I was talking about the middle class that came yes. out um, in the the mid to eighteen hundreds, and um, people we refer to it as the Grand Tour when people started having enough funds to travel the world. Um, Amazing. And I guess that c- I can tie in our elephant hair into this story. Um, so elephant hair is very thick and you wouldn't expect it to be able to be worn as jewelry, but it absolutely was. And people would travel to India and they would do elephant rides. And as a souvenir, they would um, pick up these elephant hair rings and typically they're wrapped in gold. Um, And we have one right over there in that um, case right there.
0: Incredible. And I'm assuming from a positive side for once, elephant didn't have to die for this they just right, cut some hair exactly
1: yeah i mean ivory was very popular back then and oh, yeah. a lot of elephants of course of died course. from the harvesting of ivory but luckily for you know the hair um no they didn't die to take the hair
0: wow that is pretty badass and also there's so much symbolism behind it too
1: yeah so there was also you know we're t-
2: victorian's were very into you know symbolism and you know superstition and things so and Elephant hair—they've been using it in jewelry for thousands of years. And in um, traditional, like African mythology, uh, they believe that the elephant uh, bridged the gap between heaven and earth. Hmm. They, they, it's a very spiritual creature. So they—this um, is why predominantly why they're making jewelry out of elephant hair because it—they viewed it as um, a, something that could ward off evil, that could also keep you in good health, um, and also that it was good for like good luck and you know, prosperity and things of that nature.
0: So neat. And you also let's talk about the tortoise shell. What is it? What do you have over there? Is that like a we've got a couple
2: things. So we've got a um a cuff bracelet. So tortoise shell in the Victorian era, it comes from the hawksbill tortoise, which mm. is now on the endangered list thanks to the Victorian era. So, <laughs> and all the jewelry that they made and all the pieces. So, tortoise shell is a, uh, what we call a natural thermoplastic. So, it can be, it's malleable, it can be heated up and molded and formed. And so, it, you know, unfortunately became, you know, quite popular to use for jewelry. Whereas nowadays, you can't purchase it at all because they're endangered. So, um, the pieces that we have are all antique. And are you allowed to sell them as antique? We are, as long as that they're over a hundred years old.
0: Gotcha. Now, is that like this on the back of the shell? Each section are called scoots, like the little plates. Is that what that is? Don't know. Like the the little squares, they can fl- you can like oh, right. flake them off. Those are called scoots.
2: Probably, I think that is what it is. Huh? And they would melt them because they could heat it up. So.
0: I mean, it's beautiful to yeah. look Yeah,
2: and then next to it is a piece, they call it PK. So that is tortoise shell that is then heated up and inlaid with gold.
0: So you've okay. got a little
2: nicer piece there. It's really beautiful.
0: When I did an episode with my buddy, he's a maple syrup producer, but he's super into living history. And I think we were talking about like colonial period, anything that we, basically anything that we would have today that's plastic then was done with horn. And mm-hmm. that was similar yeah. to- the shell kind of it's like now you would buy a plastic hair comb and but then it could have been a beautiful tortoise they did use sort shell. shell
2: for that yeah and there's a couple different thermoplastics for um that we have in the victorian era so like things like vulcanite um i guess gutta percha was more molded there's a couple different things that they would use yeah
0: now, I know we, we talked a little previously. Did you want to talk about like some of the fashion for women with the feathers and with the insects and all that? Because that is so neat to hear about.
1: I guess I can, yeah. I guess I can talk a, a little bit about it. So um, birds were very popular, obviously, um, feathers and then str- straight up taxidermy birds. Um, we recently saw a brooch that we didn't buy, but it was a hummingbird head that was attached to um, a gold back. Um, a little pin. Yeah, like a brooch that you would yeah. wear. Um, and they they make earrings and things like that. And then if you look at photos of Victorian women, you'll see that they have birds that they wear on their hats. Just their wings are all splayed out.
0: A full taxidermy full bird. Full
1: taxidermy bird. Um, I might
0: bring that back. That's cool. <laughs>
1: Um, we well, have to be careful with that. There's a lot of migratory bird. Uh, oh yeah, laws. The,
0: the rules are intense. Yeah. The only birds you can do anything with really are the game birds,
1: right? Exactly.
0: The huntable ones.
1: Yeah, and I mean part of part of the reason is is that birds were hunted and collected um, for fashion for so long, and then it wasn't really until the 70s that they started to become protected. Mm. Um, but anyway, so so that also just like with the the tortoises and the turtles. Birds started to be going decline because of people's want to wear them, and then and then they also loved bugs. I mean, who doesn't love bugs? <laughs> they would wear live bugs in their hair and live, the, not live, live. Mm-hmm. live. No, yeah, so yeah, dump them into their hair. No, yeah. how
0: would they keep them from running off? They
1: just let them do their thing. So, so, you just
0: and, about to enter a party, so, you just dump. So,
1: I've also seen it where they've pinned them to their themselves, too, with a chain so that they can actually fly while they're attached to your bodice.
0: Are you kidding? <laughs> no.
1: Um, and they really loved beetles and cicadas. Like, those were some of the really popular ones. And scarabs um, was a very popular bug and motif as well.
0: So, you would have... I'm going to reiterate because that is so <laughs> cool. You would have a bug on it pinned to your shirt mm-hmm. or whatever you're wearing that could be flying around. Yes. But... The, that is, I've never heard anything so wild. I, I mean, I'm I'm so conflicted because I love all this stuff, but then you can also see like, this is so unbelievably unsustainable to like yeah. reap. And this just happens over and over again with the mountain men out West doing all the beaver trapping. That was for fashion. That was for beaver hats in England and whatnot, the felt hats. And then all the, Birds down in, I think it's like the Everglades in Florida, they just wipe these things out because you yeah, want e- some beautiful feathers. Egrets
1: were very popular, egret feathers. Um, and they almost completely wiped egrets out completely. Same with scarabs and
0: beetles. Yeah. Where were they getting those scarabs and beetles? Is that coming from exotic lands? It's not America, is it?
1: There's a bunch of different types of beetles within that group. Um, but I know that. Um, there was Egyptomania. And so, okay. yeah, so a lot of bugs would be collected to put be put in jewelry. So we have a lot of Victorian jewelry that has real scarabs in them. And they're the kind that the Egyptians would have, you know, had.
0: Wow. Now, I always love thinking about, like, all these in history, these, like, trades and whatnot. So would you have gone to, like, a little funky store that had all of these animal parts? Yes. What like what is that like what is there would there been wh- what would that be there was just a store of animal parts
1: no you would i mean or you would you go, go to a jeweler. Mi- like a milliner's um, oh, okay, shop okay. to get your hat and then and you then would, have would have a, dre- a dressmaker um you would have jewelry makers um so they you know, typically all had their own little shops.
0: Okay, okay. So whatever the final product is, they would have all the accoutrements. Exactly. Okay. I
1: mean, department stores weren't really a thing until the late 18, you know, they really exploded department stores in the late 1800s. So before department stores where you had all of your ready-made stuff there, you would typically go to makers and their stores and then commission them to make you something. That's not always true. Obviously, they did have piece, you know, imported pieces and stuff like that. But it just wasn't as widespread as how you, when you see it after like 1900.
0: Mm, mm. Um, little side note for the listeners: There's an incredible book by Peter Matheson. It's a novel called Shadowland. It's about probably 1800s, maybe early 1900s, Florida, um, and it's about like a family who live like deep in the Everglades or in the um, mangrove, whatever deep in the wilderness area, and they, um, they're they'd growing like sugarcane and whatnot, but there's whole side bits with all the plume hunters. So like all the guys going out shooting all those majestic birds for the, for the feather trade. Um, just a little side note. Do you think we've um, kind of covered the Veiled Mirror? Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay, so you started telling me in text that you had this really interesting story that ties into antiquing and vintage stuff and all of that.
1: So um, Olivia and I have worked at a shop called Bygones in Richmond for a while, and we kind of learned a lot of what we do now um, from that shop, so I just wanted to give them a shout out. And this actually happened while we were there, um, but this is kind of how we buy things in general, even for the Veiled Mirror. Um, so this gentleman comes in, and he brings a bin of men's clothing, and we take a peek at it, and it. Primarily looks like it's from the 1920s. There's a pair of boots, there's a bill fold, um, some plus fours, which are men's pants um, essentially, and uh, even his underwear, like his tidy whiteies, um, which, you know, I thought that was great. I, I love those sorts of things. Um, so the guy who brought it in said it was at a church. I don't know if it was donated to the church or if I don't, I'm not sure how it got to the church, but he said he was cleaning it out and he needed to get rid of it. So of course we were going to buy it. Um, We, it was stuff that we were really interested in. So we bought it and we found one of his calling cards in his billfold. And it had his first and last name and his middle initial. So, and his business where he worked Um, so of course we get on ancestry.com and we Google this guy and we were just, you know, we didn't have any expectations. We thought maybe we'd find an obituary and it wouldn't be that interesting, but it turned out to be very interesting. And, um, it turns out that he was basically a chemical engineer. Um, we couldn't quite figure out what kind of chemical engineer. It seemed like he probably did a lot of work in pharmaceuticals, um, I know that there, his father was also a chem- chemical engineer and he was an immigrant from Germany and he did a lot with chloroform and patenting uh, that process for chloroform. Um, just George Hoslocker who was the, you know, the man that I was speaking to about, he um, was also, he served in world war one um, and he wasn't enlisted. He basically worked as a chemical engineer during world war one. So we thought that that was really interesting. So, we keep reading about him, and we find out that he was living in New York City, and he was married, and he, uh, we found his obituary, and he j- jumped out of a six-story building, or from the sixth floor of a building in New York, like in Manhattan, and in the obituary, they found that he still had a lit cigarette in his hand. I think, was he on top of a car? Uh,
2: we we found the building, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. So it's a it was a skyscraper, and I think it was much higher than the sixth floor. And then there's a, another smaller building that was below that kind of jutted out so we ended up on the roof of the other oh, building but like the the article was written like a film noir talking about how the door was locked and yeah it was like a lit cigarette still clutched in the
1: dead man's hand it was wonderful it was
2: not wonderful terrible but yeah well
1: so we found out that this man whose stuff we had he committed suicide and this was in the uh, the 30s like around the great depression time um so then we were like, well, how did his stuff end up in Virginia? This is really bizarre. And it turns out that his wife's from Virginia. Um, I don't. I think it was probably the Lancaster area. I don't quite remember. And uh, she ended up, after his death, marrying his best friend. And then we found her obituary. And she had moved back to Virginia with her new husband. And they lived in a house that got struck by lightning and the house got on fire and they both perished in the fire so (laughs) so you know it it just goes to show that when you buy things you really have no idea what you're buying and it's you know finding the truth behind them which really is fascinating and keeps you going Um, it's almost like an addiction I have a weird connection to his items we ended up selling his plus fours and his dresser kit kit, but I can't sell I can't sell his boots I can't sell his billfold I even washed his underwear um and with the intention of selling it but I just can't um so it's just sitting in a in a bin just waiting you know for somebody to do something with it but I I,
2: medium to come in.
1: Or we also talked about having a medium come in, not knowing the story at all and see, you know, what they got from it. We have, you know, so that was kind of our next step and we just haven't gotten there yet.
0: Okay, this brings up a lot. <laughs> well, for one... Like we've been friends for maybe almost ten years now. Yes, I, ghosts and stuff is not really your thing. No, you're not too into the spiritual. You're not too into the paranormal. No. So is that more Olivia's idea to have the the medium come? No, to-
1: no it was it was my idea and. Actually, we have somebody um, who has worked for us who has a a former roommate of hers is is a medium. And so, you know, she was also really gung-ho about the idea. And so I think it was kind of like a collaborative idea that this is what we – this should be the next step in um, what we're going to do with this guy's stuff. And I also thought about, you know, I did find that he has a lot of grandchildren who – because he had one child with his wife before he passed – um, he has a lot of grandchildren still in Virginia. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I should reconnect with them and see if they want his stuff. But then I thought maybe that's who gave the church his stuff to begin with. So I'm not sure if they want his items or not. So I feel like I'm just gonna be the keeper of his items for, mm. for a while Sorry. and his story for a while.
0: Well, yeah, there's something interesting with kind of sleuthing out people's lives vicariously. There's, you know, that's when I interviewed um Justin over at um over at Rest in Pieces, he was saying that t- there is a voyeuristic element that's yeah, kind of really yes, interesting absolutely. when you go to the uh, um, the uh, state sales and you're kind of going through people's stuff. It's really fascinating. Now, I've done episodes about the paranormal and I've done one with a paranormal investigator down in Virginia Beach. Um, and she very much said that objects can be haunted, like especially going back to the name of your business that mirrors can often, uh, are like you said, that that belief that they're portals. portals right. I guess people still believe that today and weird things will happen around mirrors and stuff. So, you know, YouTube being collectors of a lot of the things of the dead, I mean, has any do you get a weird vibe or has anything like been really repulsive like like I do not want that for some reason? Is there anything from first-hand experience that's kind of bizarre?
1: I I'll say personally for me no, but I don't think that I have the Way that I'm wired, I don't think I have that kind of connection to the spiritual world at all. So when I see objects, I they're just objects to me. Um, and I'm more curious about the history than necessarily the feeling I get from them.
0: And Olivia, I don't
2: know, your printer was going off last <laughs> night for no reason while we were setting up the setting up everything in here. So I don't know. I don't know. We get that question a lot at shows. Like people always ask, "Oh, is it haunted?" Because you know, there is like that whole movement of selling haunted dolls and all this stuff.
0: Oh, I barely um, know about that.
2: Oh, that's a multi-million-dollar business. Really? Yeah, that's people a whole are other buying
0: thing. haunted stuff. Haunted what a terrible dolls. thing to Mostly do. Mostly
2: dolls, but some of them aren't even old. So I don't know. I don't know. But,
0: but if they're actually haunted, what a terrible idea! Know, why yeah, would you want yeah, to put out of mild curiosity? Why would you want to pull? put something in your house like that right I don't know
2: I mean I don't I I think I'm the same with Kath I mean I get sentimental over pieces there was one piece I think it was like one of the lockets with that little there was like a, a picture of a little boy in there that just there was something about it that just felt sad and haunting like I, I don't know if it was mm. just the you know just his expression and his eyes and then knowing also too that it was a mourning piece you know
0: so it's the, a little boy died
2: yeah and it was just and i think it was one of the dried flowers in there and it was just you know and sometimes you have to think like am i making that connection because i understand what this piece is and it, you know i know you know you don't know the whole story but you know that there is a story there of untimely death but i, mean, I haven't personally had anything that I'm like, Ooh, this is kind of haunted or creepy or weird. Mm. I think
1: we have to kind of,
2: I love all of this creepy weird stuff.
1: <laughs> I have to ask you, Philippe, have you felt anything since being in this room?
0: Oh, um, no, I don't think so. Okay, Not yet. Um, I, you know, I'm not as sensitive as some people regarding that, but I certainly have had a lot of weird experiences. You know, here's a really weird idea. So I have recently have been reading a lot about ideas of and people's firsthand experiences with past lives. And like, I just interviewed in Richmond, a woman who does past life regression. The whole conversation is about past lives. Now here's what I've been thinking about since getting into that. Like if past lives, if that whole concept is real, that we are constantly reincarnating over and over again throughout history to learn some, our lessons and stuff like that. Well, there's a chance that you too have bought your old stuff. Ooh. <laughs> Like that's fucking nuts. I
1: love that idea. I love that.
0: Like I've been thinking, you know, the great archaeologists throughout history, are they digging up themselves? Ooh. Like, isn't is you know the archaeologist that pulled up Kama or ever is he literally digging up himself? Or like any of these people who have had like a weird hunch, like oh, I just think that something's over there. Are they finding their own belongings?
2: Well, I will say so. Like this this giant portrait piece I have on right now, this woman, she's kind of got. I don't know. There's, there's something about her, and I saw her at an antique store, and I pat—I saw her. She caught my eye. I had this sort of feeling about her, like just I like could—it it was a weird connection. And I don't normally get connected to to jewelry pieces like that, especially in this business. It's good not to have those connections, or you take too much of it home. But I passed on it because I was like, well, it's a little expensive. It's out of my price range. And then I literally had dreams about her. She came and haunted my dreams. And I woke up with this dread and regret that she was going to be gone. And I raced back over to the antique store. And luckily, she was still there. And I bought her. And I wear her to every show because she's just – I don't know who she is. I don't know if she's me, but like I just feel connected to her in some sort of way. And she literally haunted my dreams when I didn't take her home the first time.
0: Now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, every every week, yeah. I, every single week, I speak to a Jungian analyst and we talk about dreams. So I'm so happy that you listened to that dream. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So just well, just so the listener knows, d- can you describe that because it is a hell of a Yeah. It's it's, it's a big.
2: It's quite it's probably not meant to be worn as a necklace, but I like to go big or go home, so I'm gonna wear it as a necklace. I mean, it's pretty sizable and it just has this
0: It's like a painting on your neck. It is. Um
2: they would call them portrait miniatures, which um this one's not very miniature, but uh it it was they wore them often in the, you know, in, in the Georgian era and the Victorian era. They were quite popular. Sometimes they would paint like Prussian princesses and sometimes there were people you knew and then you had the whole you know lover's eye thing and all that other stuff but this one i'm not quite sure how so that's a painting yes Yes. it's definitely a painting and it's like oil yeah it could be an oil painting it's just of a beautiful like pale beautiful woman with this kind of like romantically draped dress on and she's got dark hair and it's kind of you know kind of a messy updo but And it has a dark background, Mm -hmm. but she's just, there's something about her expression. It's just like, it's just... Not quite solemn, but not quite cheerful and just kind I don't know. There's just something haunting and something beautiful about it that I just it
0: I'm so pumped to hear you say that. That is so neat. Literally came to me in a dream. That might be you. It might be. And um, so my um I don't think you've met Vivian, but my fiance. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah? Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Vivian, she's an oil painter and she's done some of those lover's eyes, which was a Mm -hmm. whole like a brooches that you have a little oil painting of an eye on. Really, really neat. Um But, yeah, back to wearing vintage clothes, I always wonder that. I wonder, like, am I wearing, you know, it's probably a good chance I'm wearing dead man's clothes.
2: Oh, yeah, you totally are. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, I've I've wondered just, I guess that's my intrigue with a lot of this, too, the provenance. Like, what has this object experienced? And, you know, I'm a hunter. I've got guns. I like old guns. So it's like, what has this experienced? And I've even, like, read, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I was reading, like, a forum about uh even like secondhand guns and someone said they worked like at a cabela's and that a shotgun had been used in a crime and then it's on the shelf and it's like well fuck I don't want to be like squirrel hunting or turkey hunting with a shotgun that killed somebody. You yeah. know so well,
2: it, it's also like the whole like the whole Winchester house, you know? Like that whole like the whole thing about building this house with crazy well tell the whole thing. Yeah well, uh- <laughs>
0: just to tell that story. someone listening because oh a, a lot of hunters will probably be listening. To yeah,
2: us. and I mean it's the hundred year anniversary of the home, and it was you know from um, I forget what it's the, it's the Winchester rifle, you know,
0: heir or the person who invented it. The, so they were, I think, in Connecticut. Is the family? Yes, and then, the house
2: is in California. Yes, yes. So I don't
0: know what happened.
2: I don't know what happened there either, but I guess basically the wife was paranoid that all the people who the the Winchester rifles have killed were going to come back and haunt her, so she kept adding on to the house and creating these doors that don't go anywhere and staircases that are uneven so ghosts couldn't climb them and, like, things that would just – staircases that would wrap around and not go anywhere and, like, all these just crazy rooms and hidden passageways because she was to try to fool these ghosts from – so they wouldn't haunt her, essentially. And it's – I mean, she built onto it her entire life. I mean, it just kept going and going and going. And So now it's just like this giant maze – and now they're it's celebrating. A labyrinth. Yeah, yeah. So
0: she built this out of her own. I mean, she she might have been actually being haunted. You know, yeah. Who knows? yeah. But she built this labyrinth mansion, and like you said, with fake doors.
2: Yeah, it's wild. And yeah, it's the hundred year anniversary
0: this year. And I might be off of the history, not sure, but I think the Winchester was like, you know, mm-hmm. in the. Uh, I guess the cultural way of speaking is that it was like the gun that won the West. So it's like killing all the killing off all the tribes of Native Americans. So that's. You know, and her being out in California, fascinating. That yeah. whole story is amazing. Yeah. The Winchester house. Do you want to say something, Catherine? Well, I was
1: going to say that um, building homes to ward off evil spirits and ghosts isn't unique. I mean, octagonal houses, the whole point of octagonal houses as well is so that spirits couldn't hide in the corners of a house. So, you know, well,
0: I, What is an octagonal house? Tell, say a about, bit about that.
1: I, I think I've taken you to one, yes, haven't you have. I? Okay. Um, yeah. So it's basically a house without 90 degree angles. Um, because people thought that, I guess, spirits could hide in, in a 90-degree angle <laughs> in a corner. <laughs> in a corner. <laughs> so they're basically houses that are octagonal, um, eight, eight walls.
0: But what period was this popular? Because you don't see that today.
1: No, you don't. And they honestly weren't super common, and a lot of them have been torn down. Um, but I mean, it was popular in the Victorian era, for sure. Most of the ones that we have in the United States are probably um, 1820s to 1880s.
0: So I think our modern the modern yurts and stuff, you're safe from hauntings. Yes, I think so. Well, I think this would be a good transition. I mean, we've gone for a long time. It's been an amazing conversation, but let's talk a little bit about some of your urban exploration stuff.
1: Okay. Is that cool?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, because everything has been so awesome. But, you know, like you said, you've taken me to the ruins of of many old places. When our friendship started, it was I was up in New York City. We became friends on Instagram. And, you know, I came down and you would take me basically on all these little adventures. We would go canoeing and we would go to to all these abandoned places. And uh, for having lived in New York City for 10 years where you can't even go to the beach at night, to be able to go with you into these old abandoned places, kind of sneaking around was just like so fun, so much adventure. So, Let's hear about some of the places, you know, you've driven all around, I know at least Virginia. Right. Like, let's hear a little bit about some of your urban exploration. I know you had a friend that you used to do it with a lot. Yes. Like, to, like any, like really, anything about it?
1: Well, I guess I'll talk about one that I actually was invited to do um, because that's the most recent one in my memory and there was a lot of fun stuff in that house.
0: fields of Virginia in the vale of Shenandoah stands an ivy-covered homestead that I love with its quaint old-fashioned chimneys and its simple home-like air was the home of my dear parents now above.
1: Um, So sometimes we get invited to source houses. People have things in their homes and they want to sell them to us if they're downsizing. Or in this case, this guy wanted to burn the house down. It was an old Victorian farmhouse that his immigrant great-grandparents built. So it was probably 1870s, I would imagine. And it was used as a storage. After they passed away, the whole family just used it as for storage. Um, so he caught wind of me and called me and was like, most of it's in bad shape. All, you know, animals have been in there. There was no glass on any of the windows. It's been sitting vacant for so long. But of course, that's my favorite thing. So I went down there and dug through this house and just found so much incredible stuff. Um, and I just can't believe that it was left there for so long. But it actually took me three non-consecutive days to go through everything in that house it was insane and i ended up finding really rare like pieces of denim and quilts um the halloween mask is actually on the uh, two things on the other side of that door i didn't realize it was closed i pulled out from that house and i'll never sell those because that's going to be a reminder of when i went through this guy's house um he had rocking chairs that his great-grandfather carved and he was just gonna burn it all um so I actually convinced him to keep some stuff. <laughs> Sometimes when you get to these houses, there's just so much stuff. You just stop you know, being picky and you just start grabbing boxes and just throwing whatever you can in your car. And I, that's what I did. I threw just boxes that it hadn't really looked through. I just threw it in my car and I got it back home and I found an old pharmacy paper bottle, basically. And when I opened it, um, there was a bunch of nails in there and t- teeth. Um, and so <laughs> um, metal nails, and they weren't real human teeth; they were actually like dental teeth. Um. Uh, anyway, so at the time, I had no idea what that was. So this is one of those things where I was like, "Oh, this is cool. I'm going to hang on to this." Um, and then I, and I researched it, and it it's an old superstition, um, about. It's keeping witches. Yes. Keeping witches away. Ward off witches. Ward off witches. And a lot of people would put them under their floorboards or they would put them in their fireplaces um, or things like that. So anyway, so I knew Olivia's husband is really into weird teeth and stuff like that. So I was like, I don't really have much use for this other than it going to my curio cabinet. I know somebody who's going to love that. this, and it's Olivia's husband, Ed. And so I go to her house, and I hand him the bottle of teeth. And he had the dog, and the dog was excited to see me and jumped up on me. And as soon as I handed him the bottle, all of the nails and the teeth went flying. But he, op- he opened the bottle,
2: oh. and then... <laughs> My dog, Daisy, loves loves Catherine, ran over it, and when he did, he flung it up in the front yard in the grass, and everything went into the lawn. So we dug around. We even got the metal detector out. We found most of the nails, and then we found two of the three teeth, yeah. and we put them away. So then <laughs> a year and a half later, every time I'd go outside, I'd kind of look for that third tooth because I, I really wanted it back because it felt like it was incomplete and not doing the job so a year a year and a half later at least we um my yard was kind of dying back and I just had this feeling that it was in this one spot and I walked over there and I looked down and I grabbed a handful of the grass and when I pulled it I looked back down and the tooth was sitting on the ground a a year and a half later the third tooth So we put it all back in. And then what was the thing about the nails being rusty and then Ed said they were shiny? Yeah. There was some weird, yeah.
1: So I looked at this thing very carefully and I actually have video of it. So I can go back and look for video to prove Ed wrong. But they were, they're old, like iron nails. They're not new nails. So I, they were black and brown. But Ed's remembering of the nails is that they were silver and like, Polished silver, And I was like, no, that's absolutely not true. These things are so old. They didn't have those kind of nails back then. And we were also just so worried that if we didn't, even though none of us are super superstitious, if we didn't put everything back together, that we would have some sort of bad luck or something was going to happen. It if we didn't. Incomplete. Yeah, something felt incomplete about it. So that's why we spent, you know, so many hours in the grass. I went and got my metal detector to try to find the nails that way, which was stupid because there's no way that I would ever find them with a metal detector.
0: That dream came true one day in June, I left that dear old spot, how my dear old mother's heart did break that day. Oh, if I could but see her face and lay me down and die, mid the green fields of Virginia far away. There's a simple cottage there and a mother loved so dear. Oh, my heart is pining for it day by day, where we spent life's golden hours in the vale of Shenandoah, mid the green fields of Virginia, Virginia, Virginia. Well, that is such a great one. But see, I have a different reading. Okay. I'm very superstitious. I'm like get rid of that thing. <laughs> and and that maybe the spell was broken and that's why the c- the contents spilled out of it. Okay. And maybe you want you maybe you don't want to rebottle it up. But he's, that's just my reading.
2: He's added his own teeth to it now. So. <laughs> oh my. He's he lost,
0: doubled it up. he
2: lost a tooth and put it in there.
0: <laughs> he's doubled it he's up. Going <laughs> double time that spell. Holy moly. Well, that was an awesome abandoned sorry and, and and just like sticking on the abandon for a few minutes longer before we wrap it up here but like that's when you're allowed to cuz we w- yeah. we've done stuff you've done stuff on your own with your with some of your old friends like we're, yes. y- you know you're kind of evading landowners or hopefully police don't show up and you well, c- can get a little shady
1: i've gotten caught and and uh, so I don't recommend that anybody does it anymore. And it's the the nature of gun control control right now, and what's happening with people who accidentally trespass. Like I honestly don't feel as comfortable doing it now as that I as you know I did in the past. And it's I do
0: feel the same too. Yeah.
1: So I don't recommend that people just go into abandoned houses all willy nilly. I do recommend that you get permission nowadays. Um, and I have been caught. A friend and we went to which is a really popular ghost town in Virginia. And it was a town that used to be on a railroad. And when the railroad ceased to exist, they pulled up the lines. They ended up building a new town on the highway instead. And this town just eventually went into decay. Um, And, I don't also recommend taking things from people, but I used to, and I don't anymore. I always get permission now. I try to find the landowner. But my friend and I were in there, like, pulling out really cool stuff. The buildings were falling in, and we were so worried that if we didn't save this stuff, it would just cease to exist. So we, there was, like, an incredible cast iron, almost theater chair in there. We brought tools to, to get it off, you know, to un- um, unscrew it from the floor and this thing was cast iron so it had to have weighed 75 plus pounds and we had to lift it and bring it out of a window and there was just like things like that that we were taking out of the house and, and then the
0: ceilings are caving the in ceilings are caving the ceilings are caving in floors have holes in them yeah
1: it's really dangerous um you've taken me there i have taken you there yeah yeah and um so we're bringing stuff out and putting it in the car and this this guy who owns the property so i guess it was his father's property his father passed away so now he owns it and i probably really shouldn't be saying this because i just named the (laughs) (laughs) name the town where i was um he drove by on his truck and he was like i hope you guys aren't taking stuff out of there (laughs) and so and he was like you know it's really dangerous in there and basically for him it's not so much that he yeah it's not so much that he was concerned about people taking it was the liability that if you break your leg yeah that we could sue him um so anyway, so I I I don't really recommend just going out there and doing it without permission from the landowner.
0: But you used to do stuff like that all the time. And yes. I've joined you on a lot of it. And, <laughs> yes. and I remember taking a little out of one little ramshackle house, a little um the head of the, like a little Chinese figurine. I have a little head of it from someplace on the side of the road that we we rambled around. I in.
1: wonder what I wonder where that was.
0: Now, okay, I think we've had a great conversation. We okay. should wrap it up. Yeah. But I will say as a closing story from me, cause it has to do with you oh, and abandoned buildings. <laughs> so I've said it on the podcast a long time ago, but I'll re-say it. But, so on abandoned and on Catherine. So I, um, when I lived up in New York, I got a job doing, um, uh, for a hospital up in upstate in Poughkeepsie. And we were, it's like a really lame film jobs where you just make a documentary for a hospital about, you know, some cancer treatment they have or something. So I obviously I didn't I found that extremely boring, but it was a good a paycheck for the time. But um, I went up there to location scout all the places we were going to film, and I was by myself without my film partner. And I was like, "Well, I'm gonna go check out this Poughkeepsie asylum, this old psychiatric." Complex, not a building, a complex, and you couldn't, you can't go in through the front. You can see just from the road there is a guard up front, but from the back, like through the suburbs, you can get to it. And so, anyways, I go there by myself, go through the woods, enter into this giant complex, and it was almost like that old video game Silent Hill because it was like being in a city. And here I am by myself. You know, all the windows are blown out of the of these giant what almost seemed like apartment buildings. And, um, you know, all of the concrete is broken up with weeds growing out of it. You know, all the windows that are low and all the doors have been boarded up. And I just, it's extremely dreamlike and surreal to be walking through what feels like an abandoned city, like post-apocalyptic. And so, you know, I've looked around, it's kind of amazing and surreal. And then I see one door. And like I said, they've all been boarded up, but this one door has like a huge hole that's been hacked like with like an axe or something, it's been hacked open, and so from outside, standing in the sun, it's like a black hole, and it's just looking at that is like symbolically terrifying. But then I thought about Catherine pops in my head. And I'm like, <laughs> if I don't go in there, I had cat, I had like Catherine standing next to me, like in my mind, being like, if you don't go in there, like you're like, you're like a little bitch. Like, <laughs> so so I'm like, I guess I gotta go in. And again, I'm by myself, and I haven't really no one knows where I'm at, and so I I squeeze through this whole black (laughs) hole in this door. And then next thing you know, I'm walking around the facility and it's extremely creepy going down the huge corridors and hallways. But then I start looking into some of the rooms and there's like bedding and stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, like people are squatting in here. And I'm like, this is a little, this is a little nerve wracking. So I left. And so like a few weeks later, we had to go back up to talk to our clients at the hospital. And some of them were pretty young. So I felt it was okay to tell them like, hey, last week I was up here location scouting, but then, you know, the psychiatric facility, like I went over there and they were like, oh my God. They're like, a woman was murdered there just a few weeks ago. And I was like, holy shit. That makes you a little, like the last thing you wanna do is be in an enormous abandoned place by yourself and run into people. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not sure if I'm happy or sad that I'm that little voice on your shoulder that's telling you to do (laughs) stupid stuff. (laughs) Well,
0: that was a long time ago, but, um, I think this has been such an awesome episode. Thank you both. And I, in closing, do you want to say anything about the shop? You know, you, you know, uh, you two travel around to these fairs. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about that? Your Instagram account, how people can follow along?
1: Yeah. So we sell on our website, theveiledmirror.com. Um, we also do shows in and around Virginia, and we're hoping to spread out to other states soon. So you can find that information also on our website. Um, and we also do a lot of communication through Instagram. We talk about the history of our pieces. We photograph them um, and write you know lots of information about what we sell on our Instagram, and that is veiled.mirror.
0: Anything from you, Olivia? I think that's it. And I want to
2: oh, just... Wait. Oh, yeah. So, and I think we, we may start doing some more live talks. Yeah. Because we, you know, we spend so much time researching and doing the history of these of these pieces that we can't get to fit it all in there. So, we're going to do some like deep dives and get real crazy with the history. Scene. Love it.
0: So, little lectures, little yeah. history things. I love it. And I wanted to give you a comment. I'm assuming, are you doing the photography? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, Catherine went to school for photography and you, you two do such an amazing job of putting together the little, the little basically every single thing you sell has like a little set in the background yes beautiful, beautiful. thank you yeah. great work
1: i will say i do the photography and olivia does the writings she's a former journalist gotcha. so it's just our relationship and what we have done in the past is so perfect for what we're doing now